When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Forget the myths that the media has created about the White House. The truth is, these are not very bright guys, and things got out of hand. No comment here, Josh. You got anything? No comment. (laughs) That's the late, great Hal Holbrook in All the President's Men. This week, we kick off our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series with Alan J. Pakula's Best Picture nominee. We've also got a review of the new Malcolm and Marie starring Zendaya and John David Washington, which comes to Netflix this weekend. That and more. Follow the money, Josh. Ahead on Film Spotting. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mm -hmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. You're listening to Film Spotting. Malcolm and Marie hits on enough explosive topics that it nearly guarantees it will anger just about everyone. So why did I kind of like it? That's from your Malcolm and Marie blurb on Letterboxd, Josh. And I think I know the answer to your question. You liked it because you just love being contrary. Isn't that right? 
<laughs> uh, well, sorry, the movie got to me, I guess. <laughs> I will say, you know, getting a chance to see it after the first wave of kind of prickly critical response. Yeah, you're always in that position of, okay, maybe I can find something different to, st- to say here. Um, but, but yeah, I think there's there are a few worthwhile things to that movie we'll get into, Adam. Notice, notice I said a few. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not sure it will become quite as heated as I suggested there, Josh. I mean, it gets a little intense in Malcolm and Marie. It does, indeed. We'll get to that review later in the show. First, we're going to start our 7 from 76 series by thanking listener Amy Sullivan for giving birth to our PA cat and suggesting she apply for the job and for so thoroughly and passionately setting up the greatness of all the president's men. Hi, Adam and Josh. This is Amy from Germantown with a few rambling thoughts about all the president's men. Uh, When Mark Feltz died in 2008 and everyone said, Deep Throat died. But for me, the death of Deep Throat was just last month with the passing of Hal Holbrook. I'm always thinking of him in that dimly lit, cigarette, smoky look, tensely trying to keep Robert Redford focused. Segretti said that don't concentrate on Segretti. You'll miss the overall. The letter, the, the, the letter that destroyed the Muskie candidacy, the Knuckler. Did that come from inside the way? You're missing the overall. But what overall? They were frightened of Muskie, and look who got destroyed. It's such a great performance and a film that's jam-packed with them. Cat uh, asked, how much do I have to know about Watergate? And I, I said none, because it's not a movie about Watergate. It's a movie about journalism and grit and the grind, and boy, oh boy, do Woodward and Bernstein grind. I mean, the newsroom is noisy, and conversations are convoluted, and truth is elusive. And I am mesmerized by Hoffman and Redford. I mean, we sort of accidentally trip into their story, and they trip into their partnership, and we root for them. We want them to find something. We want them to find anything. And we empathize as they drive and make phone calls call and drive. I mean, they feel like they really live in those cluttered desks and that they're really irritated by the noise. From that first bang of the typewriter key to the final drone of the teletype, you just know you're watching something special. Thanks for letting me ramble. Bye. Thank you, Amy. Josh, my prompt to you about the sixth highest grossing film of 76, which also earned eight Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, winning four of them, and did for journalism school what Top Gun would do 10 years later for naval recruits. My prompt to you was going to be simply to challenge you to spot the lie. Give me one part of Amy's litany of praise that you take issue with. But I do have one other thing on my mind. Eight months ago, we discussed a classic movie on this show that came out 10 months prior to Alan Pakula's All the President's Men and also garnered a Best Picture nomination, Steven Spielberg's Jaws. The review was due to Jaws celebrating its 45th anniversary, but we had no idea going in just how relevant the Killer Shark movie, featuring a dangerous huckster mayor and citizens who, almost literally on 4th of July weekend, choose liberty over the warnings of experts, would turn out to be in June 2020. In contrast, we decided to start the 7 from 76 series with All the President's Men precisely because of its timeliness. A movie about the investigation and cover-up that led to a president resigning in disgrace seemed all too perfect to consider the same week the Senate is about to take up an impeachment trial. Sadly, we're also talking about All the President's Men the same week we learned of the passing of Hal Holbrook, who plays Bob Woodward's connected contact known as Deep Throat. Jaws 
one of the most well-made thrillers ever, didn't seem timely, and terrifyingly was. All the President's Men couldn't be more timely, yet I don't have a single comment or reflection in my notes that could be construed as political. Only comments about the craft. What about you? Oh, well, let me fill in the gap, Adam. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm not. I mean, I'm not going to make this as political as Jaws. Wow, was that a cathartic review? That was so much fun. <laughs> um, I think it's because, yeah, as watching it, All the President's Men largely takes place in a different time frame from where we're at right now. You know, all the stuff we're about to get into in real life uh, in the next week or so comes after the movie, after the credits roll. Mm -hmm. Um, This is kind of the lead up to it is what we're seeing here. And also they're very different scandals. Um, You know, they're, they're very different atrocities, let's say committed against democracy. So I don't think there are quite as many one-to-one comparisons at the same time watching it, you know, you do realize in both cases the levels of of obfuscation that are at play in mm-hmm. something like this where you recognize that the um, the malfeasance starts at the very top and is directed from the very top but how many layers of protection there are put in place maybe more so um in the time of all the president's men that's what they have to kind of investigate their way through right is to get to the top and maybe the you know the the maddening thing about our current situation is that it's so clearly coming from the top down. I mean, it's video recorded. Uh, Anytime you say to an insurrectionist, we love you, I think you've got your evidence. So there's a distinction there as well. So yeah, I think this isn't quite as one-to-one politically. Maybe the phrase, the scene that we started out with also has some resonance, not very bright guys at the top of the show. I mean, anytime, Adam, the remaining member of your cabinet is the MyPillow guy, I think we can also say, yeah, not very bright guys, but sure. here's another here's another point of comparison between the two eras. There are very bright enablers, and that is what is scarier than, you know, clearly scarier than my pillow goofball. Um, and you see that this is something else that Woodward and Bernstein have to investigate their way through implicate and prove the participation of are the enablers. And that we've seen has also been a factor of our current situation. So, yeah, I think there are some parallels inevitably, maybe not as strong as we thought, probably not as strong as Jaws. Um, It's not what I came away from this movie with, for sure. The first thing I came away from this revisit was just a high, as you said, Adam, mm-hmm. about journalism, just like a giddy high about the craft that is that work, the work of journalism and the craft of all the president's men to depict and capture it. Yeah, I had that same giddy high, though less about journalism and more about filmmaking. This is just one of those movies, no matter how many times I see it. I recognize how much I love deep in my bones and it has nothing to do with nostalgia. This isn't about when I saw this movie or how I saw it. It's not about my relationship really even to the subject matter. I'm not talking about an almost famous type situation here for me. I am just so pleased with the storytelling, which in this case is synonymous with the filmmaking to the point where I almost literally can't keep a smile off my face and I feel a charge Mm -hmm. 
because of every choice that is being made. And I'll give one other example real quick. You know this. I've tweeted about it before. It just seems that once a year, I'll end up putting The Departed on, a movie I really loved and I think I had as the second best movie of that year. But it wasn't necessarily a movie I saw at the time and said, oh, this is, you know, pantheon level Scorsese. But there it is on Netflix. And Josh, whenever I just kind of need a movie on in the background, I just kind of want something to distract me, maybe occasionally to take my mind off whatever I'm working on. And inevitably with that movie, I do get lost in it. And I had that moment with The Departed just this past Saturday. And every time it happens annually, Sarah will walk in the room and she'll shake her head because I look like an idiot sitting there with a goofy grin plastered on my face. And a quick sidebar, anybody who bemoans that movie winning Best Picture like it was a lifetime achievement for Scorsese, sorry, couldn't disagree more. Nevertheless, All the President's Men, despite being the antithesis of The Departed in so many ways, except it is, Josh, if you think about it, a movie as well that's about organized crime and corruption. It's it's obviously, though, way less ostentatious and in your face. It's way more All the President's Men is deliberately paced. There's no use of music or similar use of music on the soundtrack, but it's the exact same experience for me. I love every single moment of the writing, of the performances, and of the direction. And of course, this is where the filmmaking then crosses over into journalism. This is the ultimate procedural. Procedural in the truest sense. This is a movie that is just about the work. And there are so many examples we could list, but even going back to your political comparison, we don't really get to ever know or really even see Richard Nixon as a character in this movie, mm -hmm. right? Except for that very beginning, which I had actually somehow forgotten about. I, I could have sworn all the president's men, which I just saw in the past year, actually, with my kids. I could have sworn it open just with the heist, you know, the lights going on, the cop finding the door. But we do get that little prelude with Nixon giving the State of the Union address. But otherwise, we only get Nixon information as it relates to the Post, as it relates to this story, these journalists are following. There's no real wider philosophical conversations about politics or the media. And if there are any conversations that skew close to it, it's always in the context of what the Post is doing and how it affects them and the choices they're making. And even that opening proper, the burglars just going about their work methodically. It's all rendered very pragmatically, right? Pakula doesn't lean into the suspense or kind of the coolness of the heist like so many movies do. Here again, there's no music underneath it to liven it up. Even the way it's foiled, that security guard just doing his job, just happens to walk in the door, notices a door is unlocked, finds it suspicious that there's some tape over it. And I, I like even that the cops who ultimately arrest the burglars don't want to do it. Like they're they're off going on some other job and they're plainclothes detectives, but they're closer to the Watergate and they end up doing it. This is obvious to say, but just think about how much of the running time of all the president's men is about doing the work of journalism, chasing leads, chasing threads, sitting at desks, making phone call after phone call after phone call, being in the car, knocking on doors, just relentlessly pursuing any bit of information they can and having to secure a certain number of confirmations, right? Before they can run a story. There's just this process to it all. And we'll get more into the actual craft of it and Gordon Willis's cinematography later, I think. But the sheer number of shots sitting at desks in the newsroom that showcase the entire newsroom, mm -hmm. all the buzzing in the background, the chatter amongst reporters and editors, the phone calls, the typing, it all 
reinforces it. And finally, Josh, to get back to what you were saying in terms of the enablers, there is obvious brilliance in William Goldman's screenplay. And somehow it really wasn't until this time that I recognized just how simple it is. And Sophie, my daughter, rewatched this movie with me. She loves the movie now, too. And of course, she doesn't have as much of a historical relationship to Nixon or Watergate or this film. She doesn't know who Haldeman is or Ehrlichman is and all the names and the different threads these reporters are chasing kind of lose her a little bit. And I get it. But when you really break it down, this whole movie is just about them trying to determine the five names who controlled the slush fund. Because if they can do that, and if one of those five names happens to work in the White House, happen to report right to the president, then that's it. That's that's everything. That's what breaks this whole thing wide open. And if you really do follow it from start to finish, that's all they're ever doing. It's not like they're off on a bunch of different tangents trying to take down President Nixon and all of his corruption. They're just trying to determine how checks from the committee to reelect the president got in the hands of Watergate burglars. And it just so happens it goes all the way up to the president. Yeah, I don't think it's the movie's goal to be able to help you trace the line all the way directly. It, it's This is not a newspaper report. Um, it's a dramatization of the report, which seems obvious to say, but I think you need to make that distinction because um, you could come away from all the president's men disappointed if you didn't have a full understanding of Watergate. I don't think it necessarily gives you that, but it gives you, as you're saying, the broad strokes, the goals of Woodward and Bernstein, and crucially, how they went about doing their job. I mean, you could say that Goldman's screenplay kind of, you know, it, that last meeting with Deep Throat just kind of unravels everything for them in a way we don't really see, right? That comes out in all in the montage of the ensuing newspaper articles. So we don't see the final threads being drawn together. Again, that's not the purpose of the movie. Mm -hmm. So thinking of you smiling while watching this, my exact same experience, just sitting there, started smiling very soon into it, chuckling at moments. Here, here's a moment. And this goes back to how it was sort of a journalism high for me. When Woodward is on the phone, and to my last point, I don't remember exactly who this was, but he hears the guy say, I know I shouldn't be telling you this. That's it. Man. And it's it's just like <laughs> it's one of the know, greatest moments I in the movie. His face, but also just I let out a <laughs> Yes. You know, and that is let me be clear about this, Adam. I was never an investigative journalist, okay? But I did do my share of real reporting at the beginning of my career. Kind of the deal with the devil I had to make when I went to my local town newspaper said, I want to write, write movie reviews. You don't have movie reviews. Don't you desperately need movie reviews? And the editor was like, yeah, sure, kid. But you know what? You're going to have to go cover the local school board for me first. Then mm -hmm. I'll let you write a movie review. So one school board meeting, one movie review. That guy, his name was Rich Parmenter. He's no longer with us, but he was like basically the, the Ben Bradley of weekly suburban newspapers. I mean, he was so old yeah. school, so intense. To him, a story about like water rates, was Watergate. I mean, it was it was high stakes in his mind. So anyway, that's kind of where I spent a year or two doing that stuff, making the phone calls, getting hung up on, knocking on enough doors to to, you know, get exactly what you needed. And it was never in my blood. Like I knew how to do that and I could do it. I wasn't as passionate about it as I was about movies, obviously. But just 
remembering those experiences and going on to work in larger newsrooms where there were real reporters two desks over, and I I could hear them making those calls Mm -hmm. to bigger politicians um, and knowing what was going on, it was such a thrill to be re-immersed in that. And I think a part of it is just the fact that, and here we can move to the craft, it's so tactile. It's so carefully observed. It's so knowing and it's so analog. I mean, I think it is crucial that this movie came out and is capturing a time that was pre-digital for the most part um, because it really just emphasized, not that it's necessarily, quote unquote, easier to do this kind of work now, uh, but you've got a lot more tools and there are a lot more resources than having to go into the, you know, here's another thing that I just chuckled at when uh, Woodward has to go down to the library and pull out the phone books, the actual phone books. I actually said to Sophie, have you ever actually even used a phone book? (laughs) Exactly. And that was, that was part of the work. That was part of the job. So, so yeah, this is just such a joy to watch. And, and speaking of the newsroom, here's where you're right in how you describe all the president's men as being restrained in terms of filmmaking uh, and not flashy. But this is a movie that uses multiple split diopter shots. Oh, yeah. And, We're going to get there. And most of them are of Woodward just working on the phone. I think there's one of him in a phone booth as well, a pay phone booth outside. But most of them are at his desk. Mm-hmm. And then he's in focus in the foreground. And then in the background is that newsroom in focus. The people, the other phones, the piles of paper on the desks. And for me, that not only provided this tactile context I'm talking about, but it also captured the laser focus you got to have if you're on deadline. Just absolute mm-hmm. laser focus. There might be a bigger story going on behind you. And I think there is a split diopter shot yes. where um, I don't remember exactly what it is, but everyone else in the newsroom is gathered around a television. That story at that point was probably bigger than the one Woodward was working on. But for him, it doesn't matter. Your story, the one that's due in 20 minutes, is the biggest story of your life. And the split diopter shot captures that intensity uh, in just a an amazing way that is not flashy but so crucial yeah and i know there are people out there listening right now who probably work in newsrooms and are journalists and maybe they will completely contradict me on this but it occurs to me josh that as you talk about the analog world of all the president's men i wonder how different the washington post newsroom in 1972 and 1974 was compared to the Washington Post newsroom now, a world in which we're all texting all the time, in which we're communicating even in the office when we're a few feet from each other via Slack right, or some right. other platform. So that all ties back to me to another aspect of the craft here, which is how sensory it is and the use of sound. And let's go ahead and give credit. I didn't know this until I looked it up today. It won the Oscar for Best Sound Mixing in 1977. Arthur Plantidosi, Dick Alexander, Les Freshholtz. What a remarkable job with this movie because all it does is just kind of hum in the background, sometimes more noticeable than others, but it's always there just adding tension. You're leaning in to hear it. Those sounds evoke the anxiety the characters are feeling. I'm thinking even of like the sounds in the courtroom when Woodward goes and he's bugging the guy, the lawyer, who says he's not really there. It's so great. Excuse me, what is your name? I'm Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Markham. Markham? Mr. Markham, are you here in connection with the Watergate burglary? 
I'm not here. Okay. Well, clearly I am here. But only as an individual, not as the attorney of record. Who is? Mr. Starkey. Do you have any... Whatever you want, you'll have to get from him. I have nothing more to say. The way they shoot the moments when the judge is talking and when the burglars come before him is from their point of view. So we can't really hear Mm -hmm. what's being said. It's not like a traditional kind of courtroom movie shot. So again, we just kind of hear the process play out. We hear those courtroom sounds, the sounds of the burglars going about their work. Like I mentioned earlier, the slips of paper at the Library of Congress as the camera, you know, elevates and we see them overhead and we see how kind of diminished they are by the scope of this and the work. But you hear very prominently in the soundtrack, every slip of paper that they are going through, even in the parking garage. Not only are you so attuned, of course, to any sounds because you become as paranoid as Deep Throat and Woodward are. There's also a great moment coming out of that Library of Congress scene. And we could just spend the whole review talking about moments like this. But there is, as that camera elevates up, this kind of droning sound. It starts to feel like the pressure is mounting a little bit. It's kind of ominous. And then we see them emerge from the door. Maybe they pull the cars. The music stops. It cuts immediately. And it just makes you feel instantly like they've emerged from some kind of hibernation, right? Or they've been they've been lost to the world searching down this lead and they couldn't find it. And in that moment, they erupt from the door. But it's just subtle moments like that with the sound design that make this movie so special. That first example you gave of the courtroom, which comes fairly early on, Woodward seeing the defendants line up and not being able to hear them. That's a great journalistic detail too, because you he grabs his notepad. He knows he needs this. He desperately needs this. Yes. He turns his head to hear it. He can't. And and that was another thing that was like just such a flashback. Whenever you were there and someone was speaking, and that was your one shot to get the information you needed. And it captures that desperation so well. The sound of the movie, though, Adam, the defining sound of all the president's men. The typewriters. Of course. And and that yeah. is... The teletype. You yep. know, just that is a suspense thing, too. You almost don't mm-hmm. need a soundtrack, a music soundtrack in this film, because when people are typing, the speed with which they're typing captures all the suspense and the momentum that you need. And we get that so many times here. And I that's a marker of the eras. When you were talking about what does the post-newsroom look like mm-hmm. now compared to then? I mean, that was... that's. A key turning point is when the typewriters left the room. And and the, the weekly I worked at had them. When I went to a bigger paper just a year or two later, didn't have them. And it was a bigger newsroom, but it was a quieter one. Yeah. And so that goes back to the idea of sound design. And, and that's sure. just so, so defining when I think of all the president's men is that clacking in the background. So you mentioned one of these already. I think there are two at least two, just magical scenes in All the President's Men. One that I'm sure has been and will continue to be studied in film school, and one that probably has been overlooked, but to me is almost as brilliant. And I'll start with that one. They actually follow each other in the movie. The one that is less obvious is the editor's meeting. There's two of them where 
Bradley and the other section editors are going through the rundown of what articles they've got. They're deciding how they're going to lay out the paper, what the top stories are going to be. And the first one is an extended one. And there is something about it, Josh, in terms of the crosstalk, you know, the overlapping dialogue there, the camaraderie that they have, the ease that the actors, that the men in that scene have with each other. I was having lunch at the Sand Suit Sea. Oh, and this White House guy, a good one, a pro, came up and asked, what is this Watergate compulsion with you guys? Compulsion? I think this is a story. This is not compulsion. I said, well, we think it's important. And he said, if it's so goddamn important, who in the hell are Woodward and Bernstein? Now, what do you expect him to say from the White House? You're doing a great job? Yeah. Why don't you ask him what he's really saying? I truly think it's a masterclass of performance and film directing because watching it, I feel as if they did somehow without trying to ape a documentary style. There's nothing about it that is suggesting it's a documentary. Mm -hmm. And yet it feels to me like what it almost surely could have been like if they had dropped a camera back into that newsroom. And I don't know how you you get that. I don't know how you can suggest that sense of a shared experience among those people without probably at minimum a lot of rehearsal. Right. But even with all that rehearsal, (laughs) you still got to pull it off and it blows me away every time I watch it. Honestly, it's got to be one of the two opposite directions, right? It's got to be just extreme rehearsal to the point of them being able to do it in their sleep. And then, just going out and doing it, or it's got to be like, here's what we want you guys to talk about and where we need to get to in this scene, have at it. And it's completely improvised. Now, I I think it's probably closer to the former than the latter, um, given what we know about the film. But still, yeah, it's just an astonishing example of realism. And every performance is like that. It is. Uh, You know, I mean, you could say that maybe the one performance that stands out a little bit to this regard is Hoffman's as Bernstein. But it's hard to say that because Bernstein is supposed to be kind of a, um, a jumpy guy, right? He's, it's part of his character that makes him seem a little less quote unquote realistic, but Redford is so naturalistic here, just so at ease in this every guy reporter skin that you forget how good looking he is because he kind of, he manages to, to like play that down without, you know, playing a part where he needs like Mm -hmm. makeup or to look slovenly or anything. He just comes across as this guy who wants to do his job. Part of it is maybe the impatience he shows as Woodward too, that I think is like, he's not trying to be a dreamboat. He has no time for chit chat when he's on the phone, you know, where, whereas Bernstein's more of a cajoler. That's kind of his style is let's be friends. I'm going to get this information out of you. And Woodward is like, I'm going to be persistent. I'm just going to keep at it, go at it until I get that tidbit that I need. Uh, but it is just such a naturalistic performance by by uh, Redford that I think is a hallmark, really, of almost every other performance in the film. Yeah. And the other magic scene I was going to talk about here is probably Redford's best showcase in the entire film. You already mentioned the key moment in terms of him just praying to himself that the guy on the other end of the line will actually finish the sentence after saying, I (laughs) probably shouldn't say this, but it's also that split diopter scene, the most noticeable one that you were referencing. And you said, Josh, that there's stuff happening in the background that is probably more important, but there's a reason why Pakula and Gordon Willis give this scene and that moment the attention it deserves, because this is where it does all converge and the story that justifies the whole movie finally 
take shape. So for people who don't know, and this is another case where you can kind of connect Jaws to all the president's men, right, in terms of a famous use of a split diopter, not that there aren't other many examples in cinema history, but a diopter shot simply kind of gives you the best of both worlds in terms of shallow focus and deep focus. Instead of lighting it in a way and shooting it so that you see everything that's happening in the newsroom, it forces you as a viewer to still stay focused on what's in the foreground. So in this case, on the right side of the frame, even though it's kind of at a slant, you're just looking at Redford pretty much in medium close-up. Everything behind him is out of focus. But everything that's to the left of the frame behind Redford is in sharp focus just like he is. That's because of the diopter. And people do all kind of surround this TV at one point. It's the press conference announcing that Eagleton is bowing out of the VP race. So this is the big news. And all of the real commotion occurs at the very moment Kenneth Dahlberg answers the phone. Hello? Could I please, Mr. Dahlberg? Yes. Kenneth Dahlberg? Yes. This is Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. And in terms of filmmaking, it's such a great trick because it simultaneously, as a viewer, distracts you which then forces you to pay further attention to what Woodward is doing. Well, you to, to experience, your focus. you're experiencing his distraction. Well, that, that's it. So you have to keep your focus on him. You have to keep your focus on Dahlberg, just like Woodward does. And in some ways, I think it's kind of a little bit of a joke on the audience because politics, of course, in America, the real issue is that we're always distracted. The media is always distracted by the horse race, the gaffe, the personal failings, and not the the corruption that might be actually occurring right in front of your face. This whole scene actually vividly portrays that, right? Because everybody in the newsroom is going crazy about Eagleton having to bow out, this kind of scandal surrounding him. But the undoing of the presidency is happening in the moment Kenneth Dahlberg says those words. And then the masterstroke of just so subtly reducing that depth of the shot, focusing inch by inch even more on Woodward until we are finally on him in close-up. It's a six-minute scene. It plays out over the course of six minutes, one long take. As you suggested, Redford is so brilliant in it. The writing is brilliant. It catches you so off guard. Even the Dahlberg line where he says, I've just been through a terrible ordeal. My neighbor's wife has been kidnapped. Oh, um... Well, how do you think your check got into Barker's account, though? He just keeps yep. keeps his eye on the prize, yes. and he is not he's not going to be distracted there. And then when Dahlberg hangs up and he calls Clark McGregor for a quote, you've got that other great Goldman bit, which maybe came from the book, where McGregor says, "If you print that, our relationship will be over." And Woodward says, "Sir, we we have no relationship." <laughs> There's just these lines like that that really keep you on your toes and keep you laughing. And you mentioned. Redford's kind of impatience. There's an urgency to it. He just keeps saying, well, what do you think it could be? He's trying to keep Dahlberg on the line. Keep some talking. Keep him talking. Yep. And it eventually does pay off. And that moment when he says it, I know I shouldn't be telling you this, Redford's muttering to himself and closing his eyes, just just Mm -hmm. the ultimate please God moment Mm -hmm. really is (laughs) remarkable. And there are other subtle acting moments too. When Dahlberg says stands, That's the moment that it now connects to the president. And at that very moment, Redford just kind of subtly looks up, you know, maybe just for a second, he looked down at his notes. And now when he says stands, he looks up 
And it's almost as if the camera had done a slow tilt in that moment. Only Redford does it for us where we go, okay, we now recognize fully the magnitude of this situation. And again, that's why I think this moment gets this treatment in the movie, because up to this point, they've come from the Library of Congress. They've made all these phone calls. They're hitting every dead end. They don't seem to have a story. And it's only when Dahlberg says that, that then everything comes together. So, of course, from a filmmaking point of view, Pakula heightens the intensity of it and the focus of it for us as viewers as well. Like I said, it's six minutes long, but it's got to be one of the most effective but at the same time, modest long takes in cinema because it barely even registers as a long take because of all that activity in the foreground and the background, the bouncing between calls, the way it draws you to what is being said and the consequences of those revelations is what keeps it from being about the bravura cinema that it actually is. There's another moment that works similarly without that level of bravura even different techniques but it works similarly it involves hoffman interestingly it's a red herring as opposed to this you know gold moment and that is when bernstein is on the phone trying to get one of those confirmations you know that bradley keeps telling them they need multiple confirmations bernstein bristles at this but he's doing the work he's calling this guy on deadline needs a confirmation the guy won't name the name but so bernstein lets out this this game look I'm going to count to 10, all right? If there's any reason we should hold on the story, hang up the phone before I get to 10. If the story's all right, you'll just be on the phone after I get to 10, all right? Hang up, right? That's right. You got it? Yeah. We're straight. All right, I'm going to start counting. Okay? Are we all right? Yeah. Okay, I'm counting. One. You know, you're confused. That's the point. What are you trying to do here? But we think, okay, the other guy understands. We're going to find out now if this gets confirmed. And Bernstein starts counting to 10. And what what do we do here? No fancy camera work, no editing, stay right on Hoffman's face as he counts from one to 10. Now you could, you know, cut away to create suspense. You could cut away to something else going on in the newsroom and knowing that we as an audience, we just want to get back to that countdown. Come on. Yeah. And, and elongate it, you know, between the counts of two and three, give us a couple of seconds of some other business so that we're impatient. And when we get back, we're still on three and we're like, come on. No, right. that's not the choice. Nothing fancier than setting on this medium shot again of Bernstein's face as he's counting, waiting till we get to 10. And that's just an example of the restraint that yes. all the president's men also knows how to employ when mm-hmm. necessary, kind of gear shifting here, give us different, you know, ways of, of feeling that tension, feeling that suspense. So it doesn't become overbearing or, or wear us out, keep us on our toes. And in this moment, it's by just being very simple and straightforward. Yeah. And maybe it's because I'd seen the movie enough times. I did grasp as confusing as it is the way Bernstein explains it. I was aware that, If he got to 10 and the guy was still on the line, then that's good news for Bernstein. Sure. So what happens then, what happens then is as he's counting slowly, but (laughs) with some pace, you know, you're realizing the stakes. We all right? Yeah. Okay. I'm counting. One, two, three, four. Every time he counts, he's getting closer. Closer to what he wants, right. To what he wants, yeah. right? So then that urgency builds in you as well as a viewer. I was hyper aware of that this time. And we've talked a little bit about how good Redford is here. I think Hoffman is equally good. You're right, in a very different kind of performance. There are so many good ones here, but we got to say something about Jason Robards as Ben Bradley. All right. 
Hey, what do you guys want? The GAO reports due out the morning of Nixon's renomination. Hey, sit down, sit down. Well, that's two weeks from now. But since they're only responsible to Congress, there is no way the White House can control the investigation. There's a source over general accounting that tells us that there's a whole rat's nest of illegal going on over a creep. Like what? Like a slush fund. Hundreds of thousands of dollars of unaccounted for cash. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Any comment from Creep? Yes, unavailable for comment. They're not talking. But what else beside the money? Where's the goddamn story? Probably my favorite performance. I mean, really. I mean... The most enjoyable. The most enjoyable. The most enjoyable. Yeah. And and how about the way he's introduced? How about this ratio to line to gold? Line to gold. Robards has it by a mile well it's 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 one to one (laughs) exactly that's why like there's there is no ratio that's how good (laughs) this performance is and how good the writing is how about though the way he's even introduced just kind of classical hollywood filmmaking where we only hear about ben bradley we only see him in his office talking to other reporters this is where the sound comes into play where we can't hear what they're saying which builds a little bit of suspense around him a little bit of mystery and then when he finally does come out and converse with our heroes as he takes the red pen to their story I think that's the moment where we see him walk over and it's one of those great tracking shots through the newsroom. The camera is kind of just at a slight low angle, which gives him a little bit more even gravitas than he already has. And then that moment where he says to bury it inside and Hoffman gets so mad mm-hmm. and Robards just turns his head and gives him a stern look. Oh, it's... And you see, <laughs> you see Hoffman like a seven-year-old boy just realize what he's done and get instantly quiet well it's it's beyond one-to-one ratio because each look he gives in this movie is gold as well he doesn't even That's need right. dialogue uh, no he gives a couple of those stares those hard stares which is yeah, basically like this conversation has been over before you even started talking is right. what he's telling yeah. them well and the way the movie takes note and the way we then take note as viewers of his mood and his reaction in response to things when he says something like, where's the goddamn story? You see that that's the first time we've actually seen Bradley get mad. It's been building to that because he's been in a lot of conversations that we've been part of, like Mm -hmm. those editors meetings, where we know that he's starting to finally feel some heat. Woodward and Bernstein don't fully understand that, but he's starting to feel it. And it comes out just in an expression of anger like that. The tone of his voice, you know, he's not messing around. And in those moments, they cut to Woodward and Bernstein's faces, and it's where they recognize that he's not messing around. Something has changed. The tenor of this has completely changed. The scene at the end, the whole thing about get in the bath, 15 minutes, you screw up again, I'm going to get angry. I mean, what's better writing than that and better delivery of lines in all of movies? And I'll give you another one, even though there's probably 10 more. The Ken Clausen phone call. When Ken Clausen realizes what he's done and realizes the hole he's in and calls Ben Bradley to try to straighten it out. Yeah. And Robards plays it like he knows exactly what Ken Clausen is up to. He knows he's got him. He knows he can use this against him to get the the information that he wants. And the smile when he says, Ken, as he picks up the <laughs> phone is just like, he can't wait to give Clausen a little dig and manipulate him. It is truly one of my favorite performances ever, and thankfully, it didn't win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. God damn it, when is somebody gonna go on the record in this story? 
You guys are about to write a story that says the former attorney general, the highest-ranking law enforcement officer in this country, is a crook. Just be sure you're right. Yeah, he's a thrill. We should also probably say a few words about Holbrook with his passing. Mm. And, you know, one of the things that jumped out at me, I mentioned this to you already, but why was he younger than I remember? You know, I, I think of Holbrook as this, you know, older actor with the white hair and his even his face here is just so young. That jumped out at me. But also the key to this performance is Deep Throat is all for me in that final conversation, because what he's doing in the in the previous ones very effective, you know, in terms of leading us on and tantalizing, uh, not giving us too much, just as he's not giving Woodward too much and, and playing that cool, but also mysterious. But it's that last conversation where he goes from this mesmerizing mystery man to a guy who's scared. Can you be specific? How high up? You'll have to find that out for yourself. I don't care for inexactitude and shallowness. A creep slush fund that financed the rat. We've just about got that nailed down. I don't know how. Did you change caps? That's when, you know, we start to realize, as Woodward does, the level of, of what is at stake here, not just for this story, but for the nation, for for the for a democracy, really. Um, and it's that little shift that Holbrook gives in the performance for the final scene that is building on everything he did in the previous scenes, um, but also doing something just slightly mm-hmm. but crucially different. Yeah. Another great supporting performance in this movie that offers similarly wonderful moments. Jane Alexander. Mm-hmm. The former secretary to Hugh Sloan, who they finally do cajole into talking to them and giving them a lot of good information. The look she gives when her sister offers yes. Bernstein coffee. It's <laughs> great. Like, what are you doing? I'm, I'm so trying to avoid every part of this. And you just asked him mm-hmm. to stay and basically guaranteed he's going to be here five to ten minutes. And she's just so vulnerable and so scared. But she's also clearly indignant i thought it was all legal i mean i I guess i did until after the break-in when i remembered gordon got so much of it this is mr liddy it's also rotten it's getting worse and the only one i care about is hugh sloan his wife was going to leave him if he didn't stand up and do what was right so he quit i'm wondering if uh Hugh Sloan was being set up now as a fall guy for John Mitchell. What do you think? If you guys could get John Mitchell, that would be beautiful. You see the backbone. You see the backbone immediately. And so, again, to... To balance that complexity yeah. as an actress really great. is really pretty amazing. But I think this whole discussion has been straight out of Wichita, Kansas. So we're going to <laughs> wrap it up. The first film in our 7 from 76 series. I don't know if we've decided what the next film is, but as we are talking about movies from 1976, you can guarantee it will be a good one. All the President's Men is available to rent on demand on most platforms. If you agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, a Pantheon movie 
has now been discussed. Not many of them, but has been discussed in full here on Film Spot. I don't know. Maybe we should do more Pantheon discussions. I'm all for it. All right, we'll be back in a bit to discuss the new Malcolm and Marie. The movie takes a few pot shots at critics. Will Adam and I take our revenge? Plus, it's a new film spotting poll asking you to choose your favorite solo road trip movie. Stay with us. It's time to end this game. Once and for all. I'm pretty sure I promised last week that we'd hear no more about Mortal Kombat, Josh, but obviously I lied. Mm. I don't know what it says about our show that the most feedback we've gotten in a long time... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> was about this horrible misstatement. But I said that Ryu was my mm-hmm. favorite Mortal Kombat character. You were impressed. I was. I think that's maybe what makes it even worse. You were impressed <laughs> with that poll, only to find that Ryu is from the game Street Fighter, which, you know, I didn't play on Sega Genesis, but I had my fill of Ryu in Street Fighter via the old school arcade games. Mixed them up, and we got several shocked responses to this lapse on social media and via email, probably from people who have played Mortal Kombat more recently than the mid-90s, like me and you. I loved reading those because you could tell most of the people who wrote in didn't want to write in, but they just they could had not help themselves. They were, they were almost <laughs> apologetic in their yeah. complaints. I, th- I think we should start a new segment. Josh and Adam discuss video games they vaguely remember playing in the 90s and yep. just see how many people we could upset or we could <laughs> we could go to the 80s i've got pitfall i've got oh missile oh, command yeah. i mean pitfall oh so many hours in pitfall <laughs> i think it's because we were just so proud of ourselves people yeah. had to put us in our place yeah i know i i backed you up there i was impressed obviously yeah. i had no idea i didn't try to pull my character, I was informed, Adam, by many listeners who wrote in, Sub-Zero. It's not, it's not it's, Ice Guy? It's not Ice Guy. Um, they were a little more clever than that when they yeah. designed Mortal Kombat. It was indeed Sub-Zero, yes. Okay, so what does any of this have to do with movies? The Mortal Kombat movie comes to theaters and to HBO Max in April. Josh, is this a reheat of the long-running video game series, but also... The 1995 movie adaptation starring Christopher Lambert, which I'm sure you gave three and a half stars to. Oh, I wish. I don't know if I saw that one. Actually, absolutely a reheat. Yep. Just regurgitating this stuff for our pleasure. (laughs) Mortal Kombat did come up on last week's show because it was our 2021 movie preview. One of the few spring movies that hasn't yet been moved to the fall. That brings us to the results of our most recent film spotting poll question. A couple weeks ago, we asked you which spring 2021 film are you most excited to see on the big screen? The options we gave you right before they were both assigned new October dates Mm -hmm. were the new bond, no Time to Die, now scheduled to open on October 8th. Edgar Wright's 60-set time travel movie, Last Night in Soho, that's October 22nd. Or you could have answered Other. 
others where listener David B. voted. He said this, Adam has sold me on Mortal Kombat. I can't wait to see Ryu from Street Fighter settle his ancient score with Ice Guy from Mortal uh-huh. Kombat. Get over here. 2021. Well Thank you. <laughs> Most listeners did not vote other or Mortal Kombat, Josh. How did it come out? <laughs> yeah, other only 7% of the vote. No time to die. 42% of the vote because last night in Soho took it with 50%. Is that a deeply flawed film spotting poll question because that only equals 99? Um, wow, I'm impressed with your math, Ryu. <laughs> Steven says, had to go with last night in Soho. Need my Edgar Wright fix. Here's Jeremy Kennis. I had sneak tickets for No Time to Die the day before its original release date, so I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And watching trailers for it only amps me up more. Craig is a superb Bond, and I expect he'll be giving everything he's got for this final turn in the role. John Dembski says, let's be real. Seeing a blockbuster like a Bond film on the big screen with booming soundscapes and expansive exotic vistas galore is exactly how those films are supposed to be seen. Plus, this one is directed by Kerry Joji Fukunaga. Very excited to see his version of Bond Fukunaga, the filmmaker responsible for 2009 Sin Nombre. He made Jane Eyre in 2011 with Michael Fassbender and Mia Vasakovska. He came up on a recent bonus content episode we did for our patrons talking about movie directors making tv he made season one of true detective on hbo as well as some other series and he's a really talented filmmaker i like john am eager to see what he does with bond We do have a comment from one other voter here, Adam, Shoshana Rosenbaum. I'm looking forward to seeing the new Bond film, but since A Quiet Place was one of the best cinematic experiences I had in 2018, I am most excited about seeing A Quiet Place 2 in theaters, assuming the vaccination and theater opening stars align. Fingers crossed, Shoshana. Thank you to everyone who voted in that poll. In a couple of weeks, you'll finally get a chance to see one of the most acclaimed films of 2020, Chloe Zhao's Nomadland. That stars Francis McDormand, and it comes to theaters and to Hulu on the 19th of this month. We talked about it a little bit back in December during its very limited virtual run, and I was a little lukewarm on it. You liked it a little more than me. I feel like, Josh, I did see Nomadland in your expanded top 10 list in your top 20 over on Letterboxd. Is that accurate? Yeah, that sounds right. I I think, you know, we weren't lukewarm so much as we had a few key questions about our first experience with it. And hopefully we'll get a chance to dig into those a little more when we can watch the film again. Yeah, we do both hope to get another look at Nomadland, but it did inspire our new poll. We're asking, what is your favorite solo road trip movie? The options we gave our listeners are Josh. David Lynch's The Straight Story, that one starring Richard Farnsworth. Sean Penn's Into the Wild, based on the story of Christopher McCandless, with a crucial supporting turn, a great one from Mm -hmm. Al Holbrook. Kelly Reichert's Wendy and Lucy with Michelle Williams is another option. Agnes Varda's Vagabond with Sandrine Bonaire, that one was part of our Varda Marathon just a couple of years back. And then we will give you the option of other. As we noted in this week's Film Spotting newsletter, we intentionally stuck with solo road trips, I guess of the melancholy, sad, or straight-up tragic variety in the spirit of Nomadland. That means we left off comedies like Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Borat. We also didn't include solo quote-unquote road trips that take place in space or on (laughs) bodies of water. The Martian, Ad Astra, Life of Pi, all is lost. All you people who write in questioning the choices 
the questions, how deeply flawed the polls usually are. I just want you to know how much our producer, Sam, is having to juggle in his head when he is coming up with these. He agonizes. He really does. Agonizes over all the critiques that are going to come his way. And they, despite the good work he does, they come anyway. They'll always come. I know. Well, maybe a little reward for him this week. Early voting suggests maybe he did okay with this one because Into the Wild, Wendy and Lucy, and The Straight Story are pretty much neck and neck. Even Vagabond is outpacing other. And a couple of those other titles that are getting mentioned include Locke with Tom Hardy and Paris, Texas, which here again, Sam ruled out because Harry Dean Stanton's character doesn't actually travel alone. True. Even though... The movie opens with him wandering in the desert alone. Well, I'm glad he didn't put in Locke because I would have to nitpick that one. I mean, he just doesn't he just drive to the concrete store in pretty that movie? Much. That's pretty much <laughs> yeah. it. Hey, I think this is a fantastic poll question because it's one of the hardest, personally, for me to answer that we've had in a long time. I've got my favorite film of when did Into the Wild come out? Is that like 07? Yeah, yeah. Favorite film of that year, The Straight Story, one of my favorite David Lynch films. And then Agnes Varda's Vagabond. I forget if that was my favorite film of our marathon, but it was, if not, I think it we was, both had it as best picture. I think that sounds, that sounds right to me. So uh, among those, where, where do I go? Let, let me think about it a little bit while you, you tell me where you're going, Adam. Yeah. This one's actually easy for me, even though I'm a fan of every film you mentioned and Sam included in the poll, but Vagabond for me is the clear standout. Yeah, I think you're right. And it might be recency bias talking. I've seen that, I think, more recently than the others, certainly more recently than Into the Wild. But it also, being the oldest of the three I'm torn among, has had more chance to prove itself as an all-timer. So Vagabond for me as well. Well, you can vote now in our Film Spotting poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. We will get to those results in a couple of weeks. Next week here on Film Spotting, we are planning to review the new Judas and the Black Messiah. That comes to theaters and HBO Max next weekend. It stars Daniel Kaluuya as Chicago-based Black Panther leader Fred Hampton, who was murdered at age 21 by Chicago police. Lakeith Stanfield plays the Judas of the title, an FBI informant reporting to an agent played by Jesse Plemons came up during our 2021 preview last week. Certainly one of my most anticipated movies of the year. I think if I read correctly in the film spotting slack, our producer Sam has already had a chance to see this movie and is highly recommending it. That was my impression too, though. I kind of dodged that note from Sam, Mm. just like I've been dodging the reviews on Letterboxd, on Twitter. I'm trying to keep my head down. Very excited for this one and want to go in as blind as I Mm. can be. We're also going to kick off our 40s noir marathon with William Wyler's The Letter from 1940, Betty Davis starring in that one. I guess this could be considered our door prize for Weiler, who was our other marathon candidate. At one point, I thought for sure, I think you did too, Josh, that we were going to talk about Weiler this year. And I'm sure at some point down the road, we will look at that revered director's work. But we get to sneak in one of his movies fitting so nicely with our 40s noir series. Weiler also directed Betty Davis in Jezebel, a highlight of the marathon we devoted to Betty Davis last year. So some great crossover here. Yeah, can't wait for this one. And yeah, we get to add another Davis film to our education as well. This works out really nicely. More information about that marathon and all of our previous marathons is available at filmspotting.com. 
Dot slash marathons. In addition to the letter next week, we'll also play Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, here is a bit of last week's Massacre. I knew something never before was going to happen, had to happen, but this is so much more. My hands are cold. Yours too. So warm. Quavering, Adam. I believe I believe your voice was quavering in that performance. <laughs> Speaking of our PA, Kat Sullivan, fortunately, has my back. She wrote in, said, hey, Adam, I naturally require no hint for this week's Massacre Theater and will also tolerate no slander from Josh or Sam on this. I never remember to write in about these and I'm probably not allowed to enter. No, you're not, Kat. But I needed you to know I'm in your corner. It's corny and amazing. Blank, blank, blank forever, she says. Hmm. Okay. Well, if she wants to support that scene, <laughs> I will stand by. She does. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. You have until Monday, February 8th. We'll pick the winner randomly from all the correct entries, announce it on next week's show, and send that winner their very own film spotting t-shirt quick note to catch you up on the latest over at the next picture show our sister podcast it's lady killers part one the new pairing this time is promising young woman with carrie mulligan directed by emerald fennel and mary heron's american psycho from 2000 i don't know if you saw adam but this week promising young woman a number of major nominations from the golden globes which you know golden globes Hmm. are pretty much nonsense but still interesting that that movie's path has gone from, wasn't it like a Sundance 2020 talked about film and then didn't really show up till kind of the very end of this year, Mm -hmm. won a bunch of critics' prizes from the Chicago film critics, our group that we're a part of, and now Golden Globes, and now being explored by the Next Picture Show group. That group consists of Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. More info at nextpictureshow.net. One way that you can support Film Spotting is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. For $5 a month, you get ad-free episodes. You have the opportunity to participate in our monthly trivia spotting events. You also get monthly bonus episodes. We just posted our January show last week riffing on film directors working in TV. And since we hit the 1,000 patron mark and are actually closing in on 1,100, we're going to do another virtual watch party. (laughs) Top Gun. It's coming in March. Oh, it's going to be so great. How awkward are you going to feel during the um, the very 1980s Take My Breath Away love scene, Adam? Well, it's going to be bad enough that I have to watch it with you and Sam and hundreds of our listeners. But also, what am I supposed to do about the fact that Sophie, my 16-year-old daughter, wants to watch it with me just as she did out of sight? Well, you know, speaking of that, we now have picked two films for our watch parties I know. that have crucial sex scenes. Yes. So this must be something that we look Both for. equally good. <laughs> yes. The craft. <laughs> Very equal in both scenes. Uh, to make it more awkward, I, I was going to suggest that in honor of the beach volleyball scene, mm. you, Sam, and shirts I off. record shirtless. Yes. Jeans and shirts off and sunglasses. Well, of that, course, <laughs> that is going to be an absolute lock. Now, I will go back and say it would only be appropriate that I had to 
suffer through that discomfort watching that sex scene with my daughter, considering I saw Top Gun in the theater and had to suffer through watching it sitting next to my father. Oh, see, passing it on from one generation to the next, Adam. It's a beautiful thing. I do want to go back quickly to trivia spotting and mention that this is something that started during quarantine. Thomas Todd, film spotting family member, quiz master, brought it to us. We have done six of them. The seventh will come up on February 20th. And Josh, as of the time here we're recording this episode, we just put tickets on sale for that February 20th event about 10 hours ago. And there are only three player tickets left. And that's kind of with no promotion. So I'm saying that to brag a little bit, but actually just to tell people truly how fun these events are and how eager our listeners genuinely are to participate in them, as well as us as hosts getting to participate in them. And hopefully that will turn some more patrons on to the Film Spotting family, Josh, because it is an exclusive event that's only available to them. And I'm going to tease it right now. I've got at this moment, four captains, four special guests who have not played trivia spotting before. I think our listeners are going to be very excited about them. One of them includes a filmmaker. So to move those last three tickets, should we promise to play trivia spotting with our shirts off? Yes. <laughs> I think that's what the world needs. Patreon.com slash film spotting for all your beefcake content. Mystery. The unknown. It's what supports the tension of a relationship. You're angry. No. The what if factor. Marie. Marie. What if there's someone who loved them better? That's John David Washington and Zendaya in the trailer for Malcolm and Marie. It comes to Netflix this weekend. Directed by Sam Levinson, who's best known as the creator and director of HBO's Euphoria. That also starred Zendaya. She won an Emmy for her performance. It was shot last summer during the pandemic, and Washington plays a filmmaker, Zendaya, his girlfriend. They're returning home from the premiere of his new movie. Washington's Malcolm, at that premiere during his speech, forgot to acknowledge Zendaya's Marie in his thank yous. That's kind of the inciting incident for what turns out to be a long night of some affection some teasing and some very angry arguing. Adam, I think, you know, we, we have never made Malcolm's mistake. We're also very, we are always very careful to thank Sarah and Debbie, yeah. especially at our live shows. We, we, you know, don't want to end up in a late night situation. Right. <laughs> like we get here in Malcolm and Marie. So this movie caught a lot of flack from critics because there are a couple instances where their conversation turns to how the movie was received by critics in particular. I think IndieWire and the LA Times are even name-checked. Yeah. And I guess my first question for you is, did a movie that makes that choice stand a chance with critics, Hmm. no matter what else is going on in the film? We'll get to the Mm. what else and how we received it, how good we think the film is, but did it really have a chance once Levinson made that choice. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I will point out with a wink and a nod that if I wanted to get revenge, I feel like I have so much power here, Josh, because I looked earlier today at Rotten Tomatoes to kind of gauge the trajectory of this movie because I had noticed it somewhere earlier in the week that it was 
fresh. It was over 60%. But as of this taping, it's at 59%. And I have not yet logged my review. What if my one oh, review oh. could make it fresh? So much power. Critics do have power. Unlimited power. Did it have a chance with critics? Maybe not if you're a white woman who writes for the L.A. Times, mm. or maybe if you're the white guy who writes for IndieWire. I mm. definitely know what you mean, but as I watched it, and as I watched Malcolm ranting specifically about how he sees critics interpreting his work as a black filmmaker and assuming that he's making certain decisions because he is black and it's all about racial identity and he is bemoaning that. I actually did think back to what you said on our end of year show when you talked about one of your favorite movies of the year, the 40 year old version, mm -hmm. and that movie making you wrestle a little bit with how you as a white critic write about work by black filmmakers and talk about work by black filmmakers. So I don't think that Levinson here is just trying to push buttons. And I also will point out that you have a character who is a filmmaker who is clearly a cinephile who during these rants and during think? one in particular. Yeah. Do you think he knows his filmmakers? I mean, yeah, he drops in Ida Lupino, Ed Wood, Billy Wilder, Barry Jenkins, George Cukor, Ponta Corvo and Battle of Algiers. I was That's most all, impressed by that one. I mean, you know, and we felt smart as critics, didn't we? We've talked about that. That's We've right. We've seen that. So, you know, maybe Levinson knows exactly what he's doing because I was just watching that not as a critic, but as a fellow film geek who is connecting to John David Washington's character there in the moment. He's definitely, and I say he being Malcolm, he's dismissive of people who might read too much into his work based on his identity, as I said. And it's easy to believe then that Levinson, as a filmmaker, as a male filmmaker, though not a black one, might be making that same suggestion. And Washington's character is just a mouthpiece for him. But I also think that is potentially a really easy and lazy response. And you have to account as well for how he's being depicted in that scene and in many of these scenes, which is kind of unhinged, <laughs> drunk, yep. not exactly rational, even as he's certainly yeah, insufferable, even though he's also hyper articulate. But we as critics do unintentionally make those kind of lazy judgments sometimes, and we should be called on it. And I'm OK with that part of the film. I took no offense as a film critic watching Malcolm and Marie. So you've zeroed in on why, you know, we joked about it at the top. I didn't want to just be contrarian. This is touching on things that I've been thinking about before I even saw Malcolm and Marie. Now, does it touch on them in ways that I 100% agree with or respect with how it's presented? No. And I think sometimes, especially these days, a work of art for some people must align 100% with our worldview on whatever the topic it's discussing, or we can't praise it. And I think this is a this is an example of a very complicated movie that's tackling a ton of different things, some more successfully than others. But the questions that it's raising, I think, are very pertinent. Obviously, the 40-year-old version being on my top 10 list, I think, is a way more sophisticated consideration of this idea uh, of how white critics approach work from black artists. But I still think it is approaching those questions in good faith from a different perspective, as you point out, what does what does it mean that Levinson himself is white? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, this is just a fascinating film because of all these complications, and I think it's worth wrestling with on that level. The other thing I wrestled with, honestly, Adam, is like it, it made me uncomfortable. I think in a good way, 
struck a nerve with me. I think you and I are a little different about this sort of the, the critic filmmaker relationship, because I've said to you how many times, sometimes you'll point out like, Hey, so-and-so director followed us on Twitter. And while like part of me is feels like, Oh, like that's great. Like mm. I'm kind of like, that's that maybe validation something. of some sort. Maybe yeah. a val- Yeah. Maybe validation. Thank you. Really, it makes me nauseous. Sure, <laughs> it's like my my reaction is, is like, oh no, no, I I I don't want anyone doing the art <laughs> to like putting any stake in what I say. Not because I think what I say does not have value, but I just in my mind need those worlds to be separate. Sure, and I'm not saying that's how everyone should be. That that's the correct way. It's just how my mind operates. So seeing a movie like this, where one of the through lines, and we should also spend time on how their relationship comes into play, because probably more of this screenplay is about their relationship for sure than filmmaking and critics. But that element for me kind of brought up all these ideas. Like, what is the relationship between filmmaker and critic? What should it be? And so I think it's provocative. I think Malcolm is insufferable in ways that are distancing and are to the movie's discredit. But I also think there are ways where it's a bit of a self-critique on Levinson's part, where of course he's going to be aligned with this guy and he's presenting him as someone who can be a know-it-all pretentious jerk. Mm -hmm. So I don't think this movie is is entirely successful, but I was one of those fresh Raiders on Rotten Tomatoes because I think it's provocative in some ways that have value. Yeah. And I'll be honest at this moment, as this review hasn't been posted and I haven't yet had to log it on Rotten Tomatoes, I don't know whether I'm going to be fresh or rotten. I'm kind of right in the middle on this film at this moment, Josh. Perhaps you can sway me one way or the other. It's exactly what its characters are occasionally brilliant, often infuriating, mostly as one of the two describes the other exhausting. (laughs) And that can make for an interesting experience. It can make for an overwhelming experience. And here's an example of what I'm struggling with. There is, for me, undoubtedly some redundancy and contrivance in the entire conceit of it, in the way they battle, and they battle hard, and then they seem to reach a detente, only to have then something spark another battle. And the spark is what sometimes feels forced, a little bit necessary, a prerequisite of the script, if you will, versus it being natural. But then, if you've ever truly been in a disagreement anywhere close to this with someone you love that's fueled by disappointment and fueled by hurt, that is kind of how they ebb and flow, isn't it? Like, you Mm. heat up, you heat up, you cool down. And as you finally come down from that emotional roller coaster, you start dwelling <laughs> and new emotions start to rise. And you remember something they said while you were making up and you go, wait a second, what what did they mean by that? Are they are they suggesting? And the next thing you know, you're walking into the other room and you're starting it up again. The the dance begins again. So I felt like in a way it was completely inauthentic, a word that comes up a lot in this movie, completely inauthentic and then somehow actually authentic. What do you mean mediocre? Were you just trying to be mean? Is that why you said it? Out of everything I said, mediocre is what stuck with you. I just want to know if you actually believe it. Yes. Answer the question. What is the question specifically? 
Do you not like the movie? I never said that. So you don't like me and you don't like me? I never said that. That's literally what you just you know, you're right in describing that, that experience, but as depicted in the film, the roller coaster is just too high and too low because it, there will be their moments of intimacy and coming together. It's not just that they've cooled off for a minute. Uh, it's that like we suddenly get this these passionate embraces where they're all they've committed to each other. They, they've mm-hmm. reached an understanding. I think that's what it is, is they've come to a new understanding about each other. And then, yes, exactly as you say, oh, but, you know, it's only been 40 minutes. So now we need <laughs> right. another confrontation. And I think, honestly, I think that is an issue for all the topics that are covered. Even the topics that are about filmmaking, they start to feel theoretical. And not necessarily coming from who these two characters are as people. And unfortunately, the same thing is true when the conversations become deeply personal. So about her past, she's a recovering addict, his past, the stories he gathered for for this movie that he made, those things also start to feel theoretical, not born out of who they are as people. But let me say, and here's maybe where I can sway you a little bit, aside from what I said I appreciate about at the start, given that material... I think what we get from Washington and Zendaya are, it's really, really impressive. Now, they don't have the text here to form full characters in the way that I was just lamenting. But man, do they nail the individual moments here. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like the the shifts they're able to make from this tenderness to, to cruelty, there's real cruelty in this film, to scorn, to sort of a reluctant introspection. You know what the movie registers as? Almost, and they talk about auditions because- she is also considering an acting career. Uh, it almost feels like a really successful series of auditions. Like you brought Washington in and you brought Zendaya in and said, okay, this is what I want from you mm-hmm. in this scene. And they just knock it out of the park. And then five minutes later, you're in a completely different film or a different emotional range. And they knock that out of the park. So, I think both of them are really great in different ways. And I do think if they had a stronger screenplay, you can see how maybe a couple of years down the road, given something stronger, we could get Marriage Story with Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver. You know, the character-rich rawness that Noah Baumbach mm-hmm. managed in that film with those performers. Or heck, maybe even something like, I also thought of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf will watch this, sure, right? Yeah. So Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. You can see that Washington and Zendaya are on a path to be able to do that given a few more years of experience and given a a much more robust screenplay. Your comment about the performances and some of the scenes almost feeling like auditions checks out with an issue I had, which is that an audition is kind of a monologue in that, yes, you might be coming in and delivering a speech or you're playing off of someone else, but you're playing off of someone else. They're just setting you up. It's not about them. It's about your character. You are the one who has to deliver. It's all about you and your character. And here it feels like you're listening to a bunch of extended monologues. Sometimes the writing's brilliant. Sometimes the acting's brilliant. But it does get a little old because then it kind of just becomes about giving the last word to whoever has the last word or who says the most or who says the most hurtful things. And while watching actors deliver monologues can be thrilling and watching actors listen can be thrilling. I kind of wish the structure of this allowed for a little bit more give and take. Totally fair. Yeah. The best 
moments in the movie are when they're overlapping in their arguments Mm -hmm. and those are few and far between each of these extended sequences feels like this is going to be Malcolm's scene. This is going to be Marie's scene. Yes. And the other is sitting there taking it in. And I think that could work in moderation, but it is, it is the prime mode of storytelling in the film. And that does wear a little bit. Mm -hmm. I will say about Zendaya, I don't think the script makes it very easy on her. Because she does have to bear the brunt of Malcolm's ranting. She's the aggrieved character in the situation. She's on the attack. She's what launches it. As insufferable as Malcolm may be, and also, let's not overlook the fact that he did do something pretty unforgivable by forgetting her in his speech. I think there's still a little bit of empathy there because he's not the person who's looking for a throwdown, right? But she clearly is. And then you think about Levinson as a male filmmaker, and you wonder kind of, where his allegiance is, and you start to count up the minutes that he gives to John David Washington getting to have these monologues, right? This is the divorce court game we talked about when uh, we it reviewed is exactly Marriage it. Story. I know. Right? I thought of that, too. I thought of that, too. Yeah. And I agree that that's at play here. I do love, one of the things I really liked is how this opens when they first come to the house, and Washington gets a great like music dance scene where Malcolm puts on this song and he's just on a high from the screening, right? The audience loved the movie. So uh, he's, he's gloating in his success. And Zendaya just goes to the kitchen, starts making mac and cheese and is just kind of like completely indifferent to what he's did. It's a nice way to non, what is going to become a verbal torrent yeah. to non-verbally set up the tensions at play. And I think in that moment, give her a little bit of power. You know, he's, she's clear. She's the one who knows what's going on here. He's the clueless guy who's gloating in his own success, unaware of what's really important in that moment. Mm -hmm. And I will say about Zendaya that she is formidable enough and complex enough as a performer that she doesn't fall into those traps that have been set for. And I don't think she lets Marie be reduced to a one-dimensional character. And for Washington as well, Malcolm is a character who, like she accurately accuses him of, goes too far. We still see in him enough restraint and enough genuine emotion and humanity to understand that he really isn't the emotional terrorist that she says he is at one point, that he really does have really strong feelings for her. And it's not all just tied to himself and his own ego and vanity. I do have to point out, though, and you may sharply disagree with me on this, Josh, maybe we'll end with a throwdown. As good as Zendaya is, Mm -hmm. there's one key scene in the movie, and this goes back to your your audition, Audition. your audition point, that doesn't work. It it is obvious from the beginning what is going on, what is occurring, what she is playing at, and... That's a scene where I do wonder if it had been played differently, perhaps we would not have caught on to it. And the entire trajectory of that scene would have played out differently. But as it is, I was on to her. Well, let me nuance this. I think the fact that we may think we're on to her speaks to that roller coaster I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Is that there's a there's an <laughs> inauthenticity, which to use that word again, yep. if you've seen the movie, you'll know uh, jazzy. This is a jazzy movie, Adam. <laughs> yeah. um, but because there's that level of inauthenticity going on, 
we're already suspicious of that moment as we're watching it. Yeah, and I, I think that's totally fair. Maybe I will end with a little bit of a backhanded positive note here and just say he bemoans during that extended rant about critics that they're not reckless enough. I like the recklessness of this movie. Like I looked at Justin Chang's review in the LA Times because I was curious how the LA Times would review this movie. Sure. Not a woman, not a white person. And he is not a fan. And at the end, he says, the logic seems to be that you'll hear Marie's reservations about the nudity in Malcolm's movie and perhaps take less issue with how skimpily attired and leeringly photographed Zendaya is in much of this one. Maybe after listening to Malcolm's lengthy rant about how dumb it is to interpret art through a political lens, you'll be too exhausted to question the wisdom of a white filmmaker using a black character to advance that opinion. So what Justin Chang might call just misguidedness, I'd call recklessness to use a word that he suggests in the movie should apply to more film critics. I don't mind the recklessness of this movie. I don't know that he even buys everything he is selling. And I mean Levinson here as a filmmaker, but I like that he's trying to reckon with it. I do believe to your point, Josh, that he's reckoning with it in earnest. And And that's, that's enough. And it doesn't really care who it's going to offend, which is kind of what I was getting at in that blurb we referenced. I did think about, you know, the amount where you could claim Zendaya is sexualized and what you'd probably have to do is what you were talking about in terms of who gets the most dialogue, who gets scenes that could be interpreted that way more than the other, because Washington looks pretty good in that white tank top, which <laughs> which he sports for a fair amount of the last third yeah. of the film, I'd say. So, yeah, I, I'm going to guess that it leans a little more heavily towards putting her in those sorts of visualizing mm-hmm. her in that way. You can see the movie's trying to balance it out. It may not, in the end, mm-hmm. come to be completely even. Well, and I think what I'm trying to say, too, is I may be wrong. I may be misguided. I don't know Levinson's work. I'm not familiar with the work he's done on Euphoria, also with Zendaya, or anything else. Maybe I will form more of an opinion about what I believe his personal stamp is as a film author and i'll start to read even more into his work but i want to give him as a filmmaker based on this movie the benefit of the doubt that when he winks at the audience like that by bringing up the male gaze and acknowledges how zendaya is being filmed within this movie that he isn't doing it just to give himself an out i think he knows that he's going to be called on the bs and he's okay with that yeah for sure yeah there's There's a a remarkable amount of self-awareness and self-delusion kind of going Mm. on so frequently in the same scene with these characters and, and then often with the movie itself, which is kind of fascinating. Well, find out for yourself how fascinating it is. See if you would like to pick a fight with either of us. Malcolm and Marie is currently playing exclusively on Netflix. If you have comments about that film or any other comments about this show, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. You could also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And on the website, you can also vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking, what is your favorite solo road trip movie? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. 
out on digital this weekend following the directing debut of Viggo Mortensen. Little Fish, the latest from director Chad Hardigan, who made Morris from America, about a pandemic that causes victims to lose their memories. Yes, he made this pre-COVID. Olivia Cook from Sound of Metal stars in that, along with Jack O'Connell from Stardub and Malcolm and Marie coming to Netflix, as we said. Next week on the show, looking forward to our 1940s film noir marathon, starting that with William Wyler's The Letter, starring Betty Davis and coming to theaters and HBO Max next weekend, Judas and the Black Messiah. We will have our review. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.